Welcome to China Manufacturing Decoded from Southeast, the podcast where we take you through some of the major topics facing importers and manufacturers in China today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the China Manufacturing Decoded podcast. And today is a treat. Today we have two guests, two experts on a slightly complicated topic, and the topic of today is how to work with a key supplier and get them to move to zero defect, or let's say to move、uh, closer and closer and closer to zero defect. So today I have with me,、uh, like in a previous, like in two previous episodes,、uh, not too long ago,、uh, Clive Greenwood. Hi, Clive. How are you doing? Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Great. So nice to see you、uh, back here. And to make it、um, a little bit of an exchange of views,、uh, we also invited Max Fitian from、uh, man- um, China Manufacturing Consultants. Actually. Is based in the Middle East these days,、uh, doing some work over there. But he's also worked for many years in、uh, in in China. Hello, Max. How are you doing? Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Very Good well, morning, thank、Max. you. Great. So, morning, Clive. <laughs> so I think it's、uh, it should be pretty interesting because Clive comes from a background of、uh, Six Sigma Black Belt,、uh, has been working in manufacturing in in, the, in different roles. Max comes with、uh, long experience at Toyota,、um, so what people would call、um, original or pure lean, um, uh, the, the pure lean approach, right?、Uh, Max has also been doing a lot of consulting、uh, after that for for various organizations. So let's go straight into the topic. Let's say、um, let's say I work for a relatively large company. I have some weight over my suppliers, at least my key suppliers. And、um, what does it actually take to get a key supplier to decide to go close to zero defect and to actually do it?、Uh, maybe we can start. Maybe let's start with Max. What What would you say? What does it take to get that key supplier moving and actually make progress in that in that direction? Okay. Well, I, w- I would say one of the one of the first things from my experience is recognizing what the feedback loop is from the from the actual manufacturing company. So from the main company, how do they actually feedback to the supplier, and how is that actual feedback recognized? Because if it's just simply an email or some sort of document that's sent back, but no action is taken. Then effectively, you'll just continue on with the same problems over and over again. So I think that's it's pushing back through the process, but ensuring that something actually is done, some action is taken on the defects, and clear understanding of what the defect is as well, and what the effect it has on the the, the supply chain.、Mm, right, right. So it's giving structured feedback. That's what you're saying, and feedback that pushes for. Um, for action, also at the same time making sure that the quality standard is very, very clear. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Otherwise, you keep、um, you keep talking about is this a defect, is this acceptable or not, rather than talking about what can be done to to avoid that. That is that what you mean? Yeah, because I mean I've worked in a lot of factories where 
you know, a, a part comes in from a supplier and it may be defected. And a lot of the time, the operator or the, the, the division doesn't actually know what to do with that part. All they know is that they can't keep their production line going with that particular component. So a lot of the time it's just put to one side. So yeah. what effect is that having on the uh, on the manufacturing company? And like I say, how is that feedback fed back to the supplier? Um, you're right in what you say there, Renault, in understanding what a defect is and clear understanding. But if the supplier is not made fully aware of why it's classed as a defect, then they may just they, they may not even realize that they're producing a part that is actually giving a problem to their supplier. So many times you go into um, into factories as a consultant and in the warehouse, there's a reject parts pile or a quarantine area, et cetera, et cetera. And purely because people don't in the in the manufacturing side, they don't actually know what to do with these defect parts because there's no one controlling the supply chain. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. so the key is making sure that they understand what is good, what is not good. They understand the impact that it has on the buyer, on on, on the buyer buying organization and all the costs that it that it it uh, it creates. Uh, Yeah. I mean, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, Clive, the, the you know what? Do you share this view? Uh, do you have uh, something? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred um, percent. For me, uh, the big question always that I always say to, to to my clients when I go and see them is, how does your supplier view your relationship? Is this a is this a manufacturing partnership or is this a manufacturing supplier? Because mm-hmm. Either which way will decide on what actions you can and cannot take. Uh, if they are what I would call a true partner, they themselves are giving you feedback without you actually asking for it. And you, your demands or your requirements do fall in line with what their thoughts are themselves. They, they mm. want to get better supply because they know that by getting better supply, by having much more consistent quality, the chances are that you will you will order more business from them. Mm-hmm. And a true partner will be demanding as well that that, that you are helping them to, to raise their quality standards by being demanding. And a good partner for me will be one that constantly pushes you to improve as well. So it can't just be a one-way street. Uh, and Max is absolutely right, 100%. I mean, I've been to factories, and there are not just piles, but roomfuls of reject products, and no one knows what, what it's all about. Um, it's got to be the, the, the synergy between the supplier, the client, how they view their relationship, and how their interdepartments work with each other. Um, it can't be a single-person, single-person contact. Um, it has to be, you know, the quality the quality manager from the supplier talking to the quality manager of the client in an open, free, transparent way. That, that's really the only way that I see. I don't. What do you think, Max? No, no, one hundred percent, absolutely. And, and the point that you've made there about you know rooms full of uh, parts that nobody knows what to do to. That's 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 a very key point. Now, I would say that um, the 
the, the point the point that you've made there about the the partnership that, that's absolutely um, absolutely important because if the if the supplier is just simply making parts and getting paid for it and shipping them out the door with no relationship upstream then they'll just keep shipping them because they're just getting paid so for them it doesn't it, it, it doesn't matter because if the, if their attitude is so long as we're getting paid everything's okay but g- going back to one of my points is if they believe that it's okay then you can't necessarily blame the supplier because if there's no feedback yeah if there's no feedback loop going back to say this is a problem and causing us a problem then actually you can't blame them you can't turn around and you know say oh they're a terrible supplier because the parts are always you know damaged or this or that well unless you tell them and you're very clear on how those parts need to be accepted into or shipped from their factory then you know so that that feedback loop is absolutely imperative and then that creates then the partnership that that, that Clive's mentioned there yeah so what basically what what both of you are saying is that the buyer has a huge role actually to fill to make sure the quality standard is very clear uh, to communicate that and to give regular feedback to the supplier on what they're receiving or maybe if they're doing inspection make it very very clear uh, why this or that is defective right uh, and also in uh, creating the conditions for that kind of supplier-buyer partnership because I've seen a number of times, and I'm sure you have too, uh, cases where uh, maybe the purchasers get involved and the purchasers keep beating the supplier for savings and then, you know, the, everybody at the supplier is like closing and, and, and there's one key person who's deflecting the demand from purchasing, you know, um, and, and, and then you, you go into that and it's very, it's actually very transactional. It's exactly the opposite of what Clive was describing. Uh, Does that make sense? Have you seen these kinds of uh, situations? I've I've lost count. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, I mean, again, the whole thing as well is what I found. And as you know, I mean, I've worked with some very like largest companies. And the problem is, and, and this is really across multiple industries, but the buyer actually does not know what is acceptable quality limits are. No. So no. you can't actually, you can't blame a supplier if you don't tell him. Right. Yeah. Here's yeah. a spec. And <laughs> if, if, if things are a little bit different, but we think it, it looks fine and it works fine, then no problem. And what does the supplier do with that? Yes, uh, absolutely, yes. It's, it's, you can't blame him for that. Um, you, I mean, when I when I go and do an inspection, I will say, can you give me a copy of all the paperwork that you've sent to this guy? And if there isn't a detailed AQL on there, I don't know what I'm inspecting. So he can't know what he's supposed to be making because the buyer doesn't know what he's trying to buy. Correct. I mean, that, that that is a recipe which I see on a daily basis. Right. Now, uh, yeah. I, I mean, the, I mean, I, I'm involved, as you know, with some pretty advanced medical devices, and I'm actually writing the entire system, the entire system, so that the idea of, of a partnerships with buyers. And sellers 
the engineering departments talk to the engineering department, the quality department talks to the quality department, and everything is laid out transparently. Yes, it's in forms, it has to be in forms, so that when the product comes into the factory, not only are the goods inspection people knowing what they're inspecting, but the guys that have sent it know everything about the product itself. Now, there is obviously a lot of trust that needs to be built up there. But if the guys that are making, well, critical, certainly critical to quality components, if they know the product, the chances are that they will be able to even spot defects in the actual, probably in the design or even the drawing, and give the engineers some feedback and stop the thing from becoming a disaster before it even becomes an issue. That's what I'm talking about partnerships, not just on, uh, you know, shaky, shaky handies, let's go for a drink type thing, where, I mean, I worked for a long time with a very large Chinese telecoms manufacturer, and I had an office in their building so that I could easily just pop up to the engineering department and say, what about this? That's that's what I'm talking about. It, it's the more complex the component or the more complex the assembly, the more interaction there needs to be. Mm. That, that's yeah. what I'm saying. I don't know what yeah. you think about that. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So, t- take taking on from um, from Clive's point there. Um, yes, I agree with obviously with what Clive's saying. I mean, the partnership is the total relationship. I think when you start talking about the different departments, so if you just take three key departments, for example, so you've got production, engineering and procurement. So obviously production need to deal with the components when they come in. Engineering might be part of the specification side of it and procurement, obviously, on the buying side of it. So unless those three within the um, within the organization, within the factory, have got clear communication amongst themselves, then you can, you know, I, I do find a lot of the time that suppliers are blamed for a lot of, let's say, defect parts or parts that aren't specification. But I think, as Clive said earlier on as well, unless it's very, very clear as to what the specification is and has it been confirmed, has it been checked, and the feedback within the company from production to engineering, from engineering to procurement, because as we all know, procurement like to in their in the, in their view, save money. They, they 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 all like to. That's part of their job. That's part of their role. But saving saving money can have massive detrimental effects. I've seen I've I've seen where um, you know a component can be specified by engineering, procurement can go out and source the part, source the supplier. But one key thing that they they tend to miss is how those parts are packaged, are they batched, how they're, how they're actually transported, what are the logistics? Because I've, I've, I've seen a lot of time where components are, are fine when they leave the factory, but because of cheap packaging, cheap logistics or whatever that is, actually when they arrive at the, the manufacturing process, the parts are actually damaged or they're in batches that then need to be sifted and sorted, all kinds of problems. So, so there's, there's the whole... It's the whole supply chain, but it's both internally, the feedback internally, and then ultimately the feedback outside to the supplier. And then the key one there is who is actually, you know, who is the key point of contact between the manufacturing 
the client, if you like, and the supplier. How is that feedback? Is that feedback through engineering? Is it through quality? Is it through procurement? Who is actually controlling? And I think that's one thing within the um, within within the client side, the manufacturing side, that they need to have a, a, a clear process as to how that's how that works. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, Absolutely. I can give you an ex- I can give you an example in uh, from my experience in Toyota. I worked a lot of a lot of a lot of my time in Toyota in body assembly and uh, press parts, etc. And we had a lot of uh, components that uh, small pressed parts that were pressed by external suppliers and they would they would come in and let's just say for example we've got a small small component pressed part the size of your hand and it's got various tabs on it etc and maybe a tab's damaged which means that it then has to be straightened before it can be put into a jig or something like this so we may get a batch of them that comes in so okay our our main focus is to keep production running so we would put an extra person on that bending all the tabs to the correct orientation so they can be loaded into the machine but what we would immediately do in toyota is we would inform the supplier and to get the supplier if you like to feel a little bit of the pain we would demand that they send someone to our site to sift through all the parts and to straighten let's just say there's a bent tab on it so to straighten all the bent tabs so the supplier are directly involved and they know so their organization, their business knows that they've had to send a person out there. Why have we had to send a person? Because we've got a problem with a part. So it's very it's it's without actually doing any communication, if you like, directly to the senior management of the supplier or whatever, they all know about it. They're all very, very aware of it because they've had to put a man in a van and send him out to a factory. Right. I want to, okay, this is, this is great advice, making sure that communication flows uh, the right way to the right people in the, the supplier's um, uh, organization. What about communication to top management? So you have a, a supplier. You think, okay, they are a, a key supplier. You know, let's, we've already been working on making it sort of a, partnership you know a little bit less transactional one-off kind of uh, purchases but more uh, more more long-term more uh, more as a partnership and then you really want them to and let's say they, they produce i don't know one percent of defectives which in you know in a lot of industries is is, is not unheard of right it, it's not great but it's often it's not even considered horrible so it just depends on on their competitors, right? Uh, but then let's say you your company decides, okay, well, we have to get this supplier to move to zero defect. So you need to talk to top management, right? Uh, so how to approach that? Basically, maybe maybe Clive, do you have some uh, some suggestions? Yeah, one word: inclusion. Let's assume that we're looking at um and. Uh, a, a new uh, a, a new component or a new new part a new sub assembly. Early inclusion is vital, and for that I would uh, I mean I've taken a book actually Max from Toyota's um, do a lot of things from Toyota actually, but let's say that an obeyer room on for projects is is in any manufacturer the first thing that I would put in there. Because yeah, that is an yeah. op- that is an open route for for communication and and probably the best I've ever seen. It it lays everything out. There is nothing hidden, and it encourages people to speak up. 
So sure. just to make sure, just to make sure people who who are listening or watching understand. So an OBEA room is like a war room, right? It's like it's an it's an area where the project team, let's say, or top management or whoever can can go in and actually see laid out maybe on the walls the key indicators, the trends, uh, the information collected. Everything is sort of available there, and people yes. meet meet there regularly, maybe with stand up meetings or whatever the, the thing makes sense. And actually review this and review the progress on the initiatives. Is uh, did I did I get the, um, the 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 description right? Uh, well, yeah, it, basically um, the the the, the uh, an obeya session or obeya room. You, you have outlined <coughs> the the reason or the objectives of the meeting, so everything people can prepare for this. The information, uh, warts and all, is there. I mean, um, corrective actions are great to put on on an obeyer wall, both open and closed. And you get people, I mean, I always say the, the obeyer room has no chairs. It has a round desk, stand-up desk in the middle, a coffee machine at the side, a projector and a whiteboard. And the idea is to get down to details and you keep the, that that to a minimum to, to a maximum of one hour so you don't let people waffle on and things like this get to the point open communications effectiveness and yes if it is a component or a new project then bring in your key suppliers to one of those meetings right at the start that would be my advice mm. max what what do you think have you seen this working yeah well? yeah i mean Yeah, I mean, from from I mean, we can call it different words: visualization room, war room. Um, ultimately, it's based on the three minutes sort of three minute management. You know, being able to understand everything that um, that is going on without speaking to anyone within three minutes. But yeah. but on 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 say on saying that, um, I mean, the, the, I mean, I've seen it, and I've seen various 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 methods using suppliers and bringing them into some visualization centers. I mean, on Clive's point there, total transparency, yes, of course. Uh, you know, for me, it's a key, it's an absolute key foundation point that every business from top to bottom, okay, certain things would be kept, not be transparent, but, you know, transparency across the production, the quality, you know, everything like that should be there. As far as um, suppliers are concerned, I mean, I have done various um, visualization rooms where we've, we, we, you know, we've set up a supplier board, um, which then, can measure various suppliers against each other and that can have a that can have a strong effect because if you're measuring um parts returned or no good parts or whichever way you want to cut a a, a graph of, of of kpi of whichever way you want but when you've got sort of say five or six suppliers on one board um where you're getting an, an element of peer pressure there and certainly yeah. when you're working with um, large companies where these suppliers know that you are, you know, you've got a research and development center, you're constantly, you know, making new products. Um, if you're working in the auto industry, we know that there's facelifts every couple of years, there's new model changes every five years. So from a key supplier into some of the industries where the goods are changing and um, uh, moving, then it's in their own interest to, um, to be one of the, the higher suppliers. Um, you know, and, and so putting that peer pressure on and 
you know, okay, so some people don't like the the idea of the transparency side and that, but at the end of the day, it's open and honest about the business and how it's running, and we're all going in the same direction to improve. Yes, and to me, any 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 business that I'm talking to that doesn't want to be open and transparent, I question whether or not really we should be dealing with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because the first question would be is why. Well, yeah, first question is why. Yeah. What are you trying to hide? And there is a lot of that, an awful lot of that. But, I mean, you know, I think uh, in a nutshell, to, to answer your first question there, it is got to be down to communication. If you are not communicating your desires or your requirements, you cannot expect a supplier to actually reciprocate by providing something that he doesn't know. That makes a lot of sense. An interesting point that you um, that you said there, Renner, but if you start to put it into some form of context of figures, now we all know that you can, you know, companies can supply co- components worth one dollar uh, $1 or a thousand dollars, of course depending on the complexity, whether it's a sub-assembly or whether it's just a small washer, what you know, all the way up to a sub-assembly of a gearbox or whatever. Yeah. But if you actually put it into context there, that you, what you've said, you know, if it's 1%, you know, and it's $500 per component, and I'm making 100 assemblies a day, then that's $500 per day. That's 1%. So that's... $500 off your bottom line if you don't do something about it and you know get back to the, the supplier and through the procurement department you know and set up the correct contracts so that returns goods are paid for or ha- you know how that's all negotiated then that's an awful lot of money off your bottom line well plus usually it's not just the cost of the parts right these parts have been no have been so the administration, etc., etc. Right, right, right. The potential loss of business as well. I mean, yes. I went to a company um, a year and a half ago, and um, and basically they were a, they were trying to re- uh, recruit me as an operations director, and I got there and I said, okay, what, what's your defective parts per million rate? And I got the well, you know. One percent, and we think that that's really good. And I said, really. And I just did a quick calculation in my head, and I said, one percent of what I think you're making, looking at your production lines, I think you're actually wasting probably about half a million pounds a year. Mm. What? Impossible. I said, well, here's the math. I said, you know, one percent is not acceptable. <laughs> it's it's zero point zero zero one percent. Yes, one percent on a twenty-four dollar piece of equipment is not not very good. In fact, it's very very poor. Right. So you both of you touched on an important point here. Yeah, the, the cost of quality. So usually, uh, when 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 customers say, "Hey, you know, you need to improve quality," um, here's how it impacts us. Then the typical approach. Uh, and I, I've seen that a lot in China, but not just in China, of, of the, let's say, not, not very, very sophisticated uh, manufacturing uh, supplier is to say, well, you know, if you want better quality, 
um, I need to put more inspection in. I need, you know, I will have more rework to do. I will have to scrap more material and reprocess more material and everything. All of this will come at an extra cost. Um, and I've, I'm sure you've heard that, you know, 500 times. Um, I, and I've never accepted it. Right. So what? how do you actually sh- explain to them that this is really maybe totally the wrong way to think? Change of mindset is an important part of this, to be honest with you. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, Max, I mean, changing, changing people's mindset of the cost of quality. I, I, I assume it to this, that the total cost of quality is based on the fact that poor quality always results in bankruptcy. Well, I suppose ultimately, yes, it can do. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 Um, that's the truth. I mean, obviously, yeah. I mean, obviously, it depends on what the what 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 the business what the business is and what the what they're manufacturing. Um, but I mean, Clive's hundred percent correct there. I mean, you know, we all work in different um, different manufacturing, and we've all got a an extensive background in different companies. I mean, I've worked in the automotive, the aero industry, where you know quality failures can result in um, loss of life. So yeah. you know there is that you know there is that extreme if you like um, going the other side and not sort of going going into the depths of that. I think as you've said there about um, mindset change, um, of course it's not easy, and I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't suggest that it is easy to um, to make people think differently. But I think that if you as a um, as, as the likes of the consultants uh, that we are and that we work with, to be able to actually start to gather some information and start to put some costings against it. And I think as, as something that you've touched on uh, there, Renault, when I spoke about, you know, one part being potentially worth $500, just as an example, but the cost and the impact to the disruption, the business, et cetera, et cetera, can be a lot more. So if we start to if we start to dig into that, because let's just suggest that, you know, I'll just give an example, a gearbox for a car. So a gearbox for a car, if that defect isn't recognized when it comes into the stores and it's actually built into the finished product, then the cost is then not the cost of the component that we bought. The cost is then an assembled vehicle that would need to be stripped down and components changed on it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the cost then is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, absolutely. That's a very good point, Matt, Clive. Um, You know, I've worked in the automotive industry for various companies, Mercedes, BMW, Jaguar, et cetera. Um, And if you get a recall, then, you know, we see it in the press sometimes where, you know, a a defect has been been recognised and the, you know, recalls brought in for a whole period of vehicles or something like this that was bought over a period of time, take it back to the garage cost is immense so oh, one thing on that yeah. when you've got to look at it is just what's happened to to to, uh, to vw mm-hmm. i mean uh, With the I mean, yeah falsifying documentation and we see that uh, uh, well a lot <laughs> um you see the, the whole point of of the, this really is that 
not only is we're talking about defects in products on the field that I work in, <clears throat> defects in, in, in documentation and test reports and things like this is, is basically endemic. And the knock-on effect now, certainly under um, EU MDR, is, well, you could be prosecuted not just for the product failure, but also a documentation failure as well. And, and so this, is, this is something that, yeah, this yeah. is something that needs to be, um, again, it's a, it is this change of do we do it cheap and rough or do we do it good and right? Right. So EU MDR for, for people who, who might yeah. know is the, the the medical device regulation that came into effect recently in Europe uh, for medical devices and that um, that is much stricter that than uh, what what was there before. Yeah. So fake documents are considered uh, a pretty serious issue, uh, rightfully so. <laughs> but I to to um, that you, you both of you touched on an interesting point here. So. Medical devices, auto aerospace, yes, uh, it can cause loss of life if some products, if, if a lot of products are defective, even one product is defective, can cause loss of life. So is this why, um, let's say in the auto industry in the 80s, there, there were a lot of changes, right? Before that, quality was you know, especially uh, I'm talking North America and, and in Europe, maybe it was not that great. And since the 80s, there has been a lot of improvement. Um, has, this, has, this, has this been driven by a no tolerance, very strong stance kind of approach by the, the car makers? You know, what caused the change here? Uh, or is it just a lot of communication with the suppliers and over time they got it, they understood the cost of quality, they understood all of that and on their own, because the incentives were there, they improved quality. What exactly uh, drove that? Uh, maybe regulations. Relations? Uh, yeah. uh, regulations. Oh, regulations, yes. yes. Regulations, yeah. It was, it was actually customer-driven. Right, okay. So if it's regulations, if it's compliance, yeah. it just has to get done and defectives are just not um, not acceptable, <clears throat> period. Is, is that what you mean? Yeah, that, that's that's my view. Yeah, yeah. How, uh, I suppose there's there's also an element of um, results driven. Let's say, um, you know, just take something as simple. I mean, I think we've gone got gone off slightly, but I mean, you know, wearing a seatbelt. You know, wearing wearing a seatbelt back in the seventies and eighties wasn't even considered necessary to do that. Um, so obviously as uh, results were shown that wearing a seatbelt saves lives then and then the, the, and then that drives the quality into and the different techniques within manufacturing of, of, of seatbelts you know from the from the old style of non-recoil ones to the recoil ones to ones that you get on your top end cars which you know come and almost put it on for you but yeah but that's I'm not sure that whether that's that's quality driven or as Clive said, more sort of like from a legislation side. Interesting. So what, because a lot of people are not in a highly regulated industry, right? They're not in auto, in, in, in aerospace. Right. Um, actually, even in, in pharmaceuticals and medical devices, a lot of people are still 
struggling with that. Now imagine people in general consumer goods. So how, how should they approach that with their suppliers? So again, it's, it's going to be a lot of communication with, with middle management, communication directly to the right people, a lot of feedback, a lot of teaching, uh, a lot of clarifications, and really being as transparent and inclusive as possible. But what if you really want to go fast? Like some, some companies, some groups say, okay, this is our new policy. We need to go in that direction. It's got to be, you know, a sharp decrease in defects because maybe we're moving up market. Maybe, maybe we have some competition and we're really losing a lot of market share because our quality is not that great. You know, how, how can they accelerate? you know, the, the, the curve a little bit rather than, you know, keep giving feedback and, and trying to be inclusive and, tr- you know, talking about key suppliers, key partnerships, things like that. And, you know, over time it, it will work, but how many years is it going to take? Who knows? Especially if at the same time, there's also a lot of um, price pressure and then, you know, the purchasers getting involved and, and everything we talked about before that can derail that idea of a partnership. How, how can they jumpstart it? Have, have you got any any ideas? I'll let you go on that one, uh, Max. <laughs> um, well, I think that's uh, it, it, it's a it's a difficult question because it's where it's where somebody wants to pitch themselves within the market. So yeah. if you know when you talk about consumer goods, for example, let's take I don't know an example, a washing machine. So <clears throat> so. It, if there's a company that's quite happy to make lots of them at a lower cost and they don't mind about or they don't care about particularly about their brand name or whatever, because they can produce it at such a low cost that they know people will buy it because it's an affordable item. So it's $200 instead of your standard at $400. If that's where somebody wants to pitch themselves within the market, I think you're, you're in a very difficult um situation to try to um improve their quality um but on saying that it doesn't mean to say that they can't make the product for less cost themselves and make even more money so there's another angle there because if they're exactly the same as we spoke about before if they are getting cheaper parts let's say from their suppliers but if they're contracted you know, if the contract is written correctly by procurement that, you know, you deliver 100 parts every day and they should be of this standard and we won't accept any defects. If they turn, if you know, if in the contract it says we'll accept 1% defect and we'll send it back to you and you send us a new one back that's not defective. So it all comes down to where you want to pitch yourself within that. But I mean, interesting though, there's, um, there's a client that's just approached, um, that's just approached me. And uh, th- they make a particular uh, consumer goods, uh, similar to what I've just mentioned there. And th- they've actually come and said to me, we want to be the same as some of the high end Italian brands. So that's what that's where they are now pitching themselves. They they've said we want to be recognized as higher quality. How can we go about that? Now, that's fantastic for them, because obviously they're open to ideas because that's where they want to be and that's where they want to pitch themselves so coming up with ideas for them um is not going to be easy but obviously they're going to be more open-minded to what those suggestions are because that's the that's their end goal 
So I think it depends on where the where the manufacturer sits within that market and what they want to um, how they want to operate. But recognizing the cost of what it is is another is another item because I mean I've never been involved in it, but I mean if you buy the cheap washing machine and it breaks down after six months. How does that cost actually come back to the original manufacturer? Because you send it back, a repair person comes out. Is there any actual link between the manufacturer and the service cost or the warranty costs? How is that link sort of joined to joined together at the bottom line to make the manufacturing people recognize that actually, you know, we may be able to put some KPI out to say we've made a hundred thousand washing machines this year and you know we make a you know, $100 profit on every machine. Therefore, this is the maths. This is what we've made. But actually, is it ever incorporated that, you know, 10% of those were returned as a serviceman had to go out to repair them because they were failed within the warranty period? There was also insurance claims, etc. How are those two linked together? Mm, absolutely, yes. And with home appliances, it can be very, very, very expensive. I read recently, mm. G in the 80s had costs on their fridges of, something like four or five hundred million dollars um, <laughs> because of, you know, poor um, um, one part that needed to be changed and then it was still defective and you need to go back and things like that. Costs just balloon like crazy. Let, let's assume that you're, that, that you're requiring a cost reduction, okay? Now, okay, it depends where you are on the product life cycle. There's nothing, nothing wrong. In fact, I would say it's good practice to even to build in stage cost reduction throughout, throughout a product life cycle. And be totally honest with the supplier. Look, this is where it will be. We will, we will accept X amount of cost reduction over a, a planned period. Then they can actually then look at ways of actually reducing cost and at the same time not impacting on quality. So if you're at the early market entry stage of the product, then having the discussion on a planned cost reduction, mm. it allows people to build in the idea of, well, we're going to be working on this project for a long time. So, yes, we can give them an example of, at, at you know, Q1, Y2, it's going to be this. Q3, Y3 is going to be this. That is the type of transparency that I was talking about. So let me rephrase the question. You, you, you made some great points. Let me rephrase the question a little bit. Actually, it's going to be our last, the, the last question uh, for, for both of you. Uh, let's say the context is a little bit different. Let's say you have a, a, a major supplier and their quality is just not good. And you've been consistently telling them, we want you to be there, but you are there. And inconsistent, it's even worse, right? Uh, and over the years, you keep, you know, Complaining about it to them. I mean, they know very clearly your standard. In the, they know clearly they're way above your standard, but they just don't make, they, they just don't do anything about it, right? For years and years and years. How, you know, I, I've seen a, different things happen. You know, sometimes the buyer just gets really upset, gets another source, tell this guy, the, the bad guy, okay, um, you know, you have, three months to show me some improvement. Otherwise I cut your orders by 20% every month or something like that, right? Um, have you seen these this kinds of, um, of, of, of threats, let's say, or let's say that there might 
be a, a stick, but there might, might also be a carrot, right? In, in that context, how would you approach it? Uh, would you just say, okay, just source another guy, make sure he's good and just switch to this guy? Uh, or have you seen actually some people effectively jump starting? okay, the, the current supplier put, put a fire under them and, and, and then they get moving with results? Well, right. As regards to how do you, how do you jumpstart them? Um, in some cases, you just have to hold your hands up and realize that they're just never going to get there. Uh, it really depends on if you've been talking to them for two or three years and it's, you're still dealing with the same things. You've got to have to realize that, unfortunately, this, this, these guys are not for you. No matter what you've done, no matter how you've tried, you've given them this length of time, they haven't improved, then you then you have to get rid of them. That's simple for me. I mean, Max, what would you do? I know me. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, there's 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 only uh, there's only so many things that you can you can do to uh, to support a supplier. Um, but I mean, going back to uh, one of the earlier points that Clive made about. Uh, uh, formulating a partnership with your suppliers. I mean, to me, that is, you know, one of the most important points. If you treat a supplier as just a supplier that's going to give me that product, that's what we paid for and that's what we get, then I would say that you're setting yourself up to fail. Yeah. As I say, going back to going back to Clive's point, it needs to be a relationship. Their business is, imp- is as important to them as your business is important to yourself. They shouldn't be treated as a, a downstream, oh, they're just a supplier. No, they're running a business. They're, they're, they, are, they are running a business and you are, you know, receiving goods from them. So certainly with a, with a number of companies that I've worked with where we've come to that problem is, you know, set up a supplier development program. So yep. you can actually go into the suppliers and offer support to help them become a good supplier at the right quality in the right batch numbers with the right packaging the right shipments just in time kanbans whatever processes you want to put in that is going to save you money then going in and doing the supplier development program because when um, just just as a finishing point when toyota first started out in the uk in 1992 they had no suppliers, of course. So a lot of the a lot of the components originally came over from uh, Japan because they were that that's where the supply chain was coming from, which obviously huge expense. Um, but slowly but surely, local suppliers were um, were brought in, et cetera, et cetera. But Toyota spent an awful lot of money and an awful lot of time on supplier development by going into the companies because effectively those suppliers had to take on a lot of the philosophies that Toyota had. Now, I'm not suggesting the com- every company out there should follow the Toyota philosophies. What I'm saying is that Toyota aligned the suppliers with what their requirements were. So it doesn't matter what your supplier is. If they're aligned to what you require, whether that's quality, just in time, packaging, batch numbers, delivery, whatever those are, it's about that partnership and developing them to become part of the supply chain. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. Well, uh, on these wide words, thank you so much. This has been a great uh, discussion. So 
again, so I want to thank uh, my, my two guests. Uh, so Max Fitian, who is the Managing Director of Middle East at Manufacturing Transformation Group, actually is the, the, the holding company that, that owns CMC. And Clive Greenwood, partner at WWMG Associates, uh, based, based in Suzhou next to Shanghai in China. Thank you so much to both of you and to our listeners. I hope you enjoyed this, uh, this episode full of, full of great, uh, great advice. And I will talk to you next week again for the next episode. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, don't forget to like and share. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other places that you get your podcasts from. See you next time.